0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 130, The Only German to Benefit from Barbarossa. Last time, as Gustav Krupp's mental abilities faded with age, his oldest son Alfred, named after the great canon king himself, took over more and more responsibilities. And for whatever reason or reasons, those who had come before him His mother forcing him to separate from his wife, i.e. having power over him, or just due to some internal tick. Alfred desired to be the greatest Krupp yet, and he had found a way to make his dream come true. He would tie his star to Hitler, as the latter sought to dominate Europe, and then, who knows, maybe even more of the world. To be sure, there were thousands— Tens of thousands that also sought to gain from Nazi victories, and only each individual could say what it would take to slacken their thirst. But for Alfred, there was no amount, no number of deeds to mines or papers of ownership of other companies that could cause him to relent his desire for greatness and enjoy what he had. In April of 41, Nazi Germany invaded Yugoslavia to better position troops for Operation Barbarossa. Soon after the Yugoslav state fell, Alfred partnered with field marshal Gehring, and they took all the stock from the company's Krumaseo mining company, from its owner, Moses Aseo. They split the stock evenly, but then the field marshal shocked the young executive by saying that 400,000 dinars should go to the previous owner, and that it should come from Krupp. Alfred wrote to his partner, asking why he was insisting so emphatically on payment for the benefit of Jewish property. It may be that Gehring was taking the long view, in case, just in case, the war did not go their way, which was unthinkable to Alfred. Still, he did as the field marshal asked and had the paperwork drawn up. But, after Pearl Harbor and the United States joined those pitted against the Axis, Hence, creating a do-or-die situation, Alfred would dispense with the niceties of paperwork and simply take by force, if necessary, what he wanted and needed for the international struggle. One example will do. In early 1942, Alfred set up a separate company that only had one goal, to find worthy companies in Holland, break them apart physically, and ship them back to the Ruhr. However, one shipbuilder, Herr Volterbohr, refused to give up his company. To this, Alfred wrote a letter to his man on the scene. Herr Voltenboer is a Dutchman. He plainly has no interest in furthering the interest of the German Navy. Dr. Knobloch will inform the Navy of our way of looking at things, and will suggest that the Navy exert a certain amount of pressure on Volterbohr. Krupp got the company, with the Kriegsmarine's help. Torture wasn't needed here, but one can't help but feel that Alfred would have been okay with this, as long as someone else was doing it, and he was left out of the details. It must be remembered that Holland had been a neutral country when it was invaded. But it would be this straight-up seizing of property that would land Alfred in hot water after the war. A tungsten mine in northern France was taken, without notice, and later a Nuremberg judge would note, without the issuance of a requisition. Now, this may seem unimportant in the scope of things, but it added weight to those seeking to reacquire their property from Krupp, whether said property was moved to Germany or simply taken over. And as neither side could show an exchange of ownership, it proved the canon king's outright theft. Indeed, there would be times when Krupp's representatives or hunters of assets, for that's what they were, went too far even for Nazi officials. Near the end of the war, desperate times indeed, but still, Alfred decided to take what he could, while he could. Two of his men drove to the Dutch city of Dortret to take tools from the Lip firm that specialized in seals. Their bold and systematic theft shocked the Nazi representative Running the area. The leading Nazi officer reported back to Hitler, for that's who he answered to, and said that the Krupp men were nothing more than robbers. But by then, Hitler had larger things to worry about. But that was Holland. The war against Russia, as we know, was a much different animal altogether. As early as March of 1941, for an undertaking as massive as Barbarossa could not be kept in secret. The American commercial attaché in Berlin came across Nazi plans for economic exploitation after Moscow fell. Hitler himself supported, encouraged, and even demanded such actions. His statement, the war against Russia will be such that it cannot be conducted in a nightly fashion, does not even begin to describe the horror that awaited the Russian people. The theft that was about to occur was worked out as thoroughly as the fighting itself, and though Alfred was the first to draw up such plans, his instructions were soon made official by Hitler. As such, Krupp, in the form of Alfred, would benefit the most from Barbarossa. Ukraine, Stalin's breadbasket, would be sliced into a separate, lone standing entity. It would become a modern colony and stripped of everything of value, foodstuffs, iron, coal mines, and its steel factories. But of the latter, Hitler and Alfred would both be disappointed to find these choice works themselves already dissembled and moved beyond the Ural Mountains. As for its people, those who survived the assault, some 40 million of them, would be nothing more than subjects to be worked for the benefit of the Third Reich and Krupp. To keep everything involved organized, an organization was set up, the BHO, the Mining and Foundry Works Company East, and Alfred would be its master. As we have seen, Hitler's war against Stalin's Russia started out well. The various defensive fronts either collapsed, were captured, or destroyed, or its men fell back hundreds of kilometers. But then came the mistakes, Hitler's mistakes, and one has to wonder, though there's no proof, if some of these were due to advice from Alfred. First, Leningrad, under General Voroshilov, who stripped the nearby Finnish battlefield of all reserves, denied the Germans access into the heart of the city with his 60 divisions. Then, though the Germans made it to the outskirts of the Soviet capital itself, found the defensive works in front of Moscow, holding, though at considerable cost. But some of these failures were German mistakes, not a Soviet victory. Back in August, Hitler, assured the war was already over, in fact, he had been told this by just about everybody, decided to focus on the Ukraine, instead of finishing off Barbarossa by taking Moscow. But for each success and each advance, not only did the weather worsen, but men and equipment were lost, at a rate not expected. General Heinz Guderian saw the writing on the wall and all but demanded from Hitler permission and the resources to push into the enemy's capital. But Hitler shot this down. My generals, he said at that day's meeting, know nothing about the economic aspects of war. That almost sounds like a Krupp quote. On paper, Hitler's plan should have worked. Both leaders of this colossal fight knew that Russia's main industry and food banks were in the Ukraine, and now that they were, though imperfectly in German hands, Stalin should have began to seek terms. But he did not. Instead, he begged Churchill for a second front, and his main reason was the loss of the Ukraine. As Stalin messaged to Churchill, the position of the Soviet troops has considerably deteriorated in such vital areas as the Ukraine. The relative stability of the front, achieved some three weeks ago, has been upset by the arrival of thirty to thirty four German divisions and enormous numbers of tanks and aircraft. Which brings us to Operation Typhoon. Again, on paper, this was a solid idea. By October forty one, the Russians had lost over a million men, thousands of tanks and large guns. Now, it seemed to Hitler, who suddenly put economic goals over military ones, a bad idea he came up with himself, or on advice from Alfred, hoped this would end the war. Many of Hitler's generals wanted to come straight at the Soviet capital and crush all resistance before them and take the city. Hitler's response to this was, Only ossified brains could think up such an idea. Instead, his idea was to encircle the defensive units in front of the capital, destroy them, and then use his panzers to swing north and south to envelop Moscow. It would be cut off from all help, and slowly the noose would be tightened. But it was this very separation of tanks from men that slowed the Nazi assault, while extending their supply lines. And though many new Soviet prisoners were taken, Stalin was able to bring in reinforcements, some even from the Far East, now that Japan was holding to the terms of the non aggression agreement after the Soviet victory at the Battle of Nomahan. And though the Germans had almost as many men for Typhoon as the Soviets had defending Moscow, they did not have as many tanks nor artillery pieces, what with the losses they had sustained to get to this point, and as the Soviet factories had started making good, what losses they had sustained. Typhoon started on October 2nd, and again, through professionalism, the Germans achieved their initial goals. But on October 7th, the first snows came, and when they melted, the roads were covered with mud. The Germans were slowed, which allowed vast trapped Soviet armies to escape while reinforcements arrived. The German assault ground to a halt, and it was then the Stavka launched small, specific offenses of their own, all but to guarantee the end of Typhoon. And the finishing touch was Stalin's scorched earth policy, which left the invaders no food, fuel, or buildings to assist them. Hitler's economic war brought many new acquisitions to Alfred, but it did not bring about the end of the war in the East. Meanwhile, back in Essen, Alfred followed the Eastern Front just as closely as Hitler, and each time a new territory was taken or passed by, in effect now under German control, the new canon king pushed in a red pen into his map for just such a purpose. But by October, Stalin's plan to remove heavy industry, located west of Moscow, had totaled some 283 major industrial enterprises and another 136 smaller factories. Of course, what was left behind, and it was considerable, was either controlled or at the very least administered by Krupp. To combat this, Stalin had ordered that all manufacturing plants successfully removed be back up and running by Christmas Eve, which would allow him to bring even more resources against Typhoon as it limped on until January of 42. Before 1941 was over, Alfred had the ability to give Hitler armies of tanks, and the latter needed it. His forces had gone far and achieved incredible victories, but it had been bloodied along the way. Had Germany's war-age male population had an extra 5 million, vast additional panzer groups could have been thrown at Stalin's defenses. Of course, that does not mean Hitler would have used them any better, but as we have seen in battles past, numbers tell. Incredibly, the occupation of the Ukraine could have had a completely different history and effect upon the larger war. Stalin's two five-year plans left many in the Ukraine on the point of starvation, or dead, or arrested, or forced into labor camps. The people there considered themselves a separate country and hated Stalin and his policies. So when the Wehrmacht showed up pushing back the Russian soldiers, the various locals saw the Germans and treated them like liberators, ready to join the forces. Not that the invaders cared how they were perceived. Ukrainian newspapers were banned, priests were jailed, and everything worth anything was packed up and sent back west. Why? When the people were clearly open to the Germans. Well, one, they were all or mostly Slavs, and to the Nazi ideology, they were subhuman and thus did not deserve the fertile land they occupied. Secondly, what to do with the vast territory and its people had already been decided, and Germans execute preconceived plans much better than they improvise them based on events. Field Marshal Gehring had wanted to kill all of the men in the Ukraine and then send in the SS stallions to create a new race of half-Aryans to populate the lands of western Russia. And again, Nazi ideals were about to run smack into Krupp interests. Erich Koch, a garing man who was made Reich Commissar of the Ukraine, right away asked Reich Führ of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, to bring in extermination squads to begin removing the Slavs from the occupied lands. But Alfred, who was at this meeting, managed not to lose his cool and asked, So Who's going to be working in his newly acquired factories? This put a monkey wrench into Koch's plans. Instead, the following would happen. Hundreds of thousands of locals, eventually some four million Ukrainians, would be brought back to Germany to work for the Reich. The rest, well, Koch would get his way. In one month alone, the city of Kharkov's population was cut in half from 700,000 to 350,000. The lucky ones were on their way to Germany. The rest would only know misery for the rest of their short lives. To the shock of the Germans, the Ukrainians then had the bad grace to resist, and this started from day one, after the Germans made their intentions clear. The locals fought back by not showing up to various train stations to be shipped west. The invaders countered this with confiscation of grain and property, burning down of their houses, mishandling those assembled, forcible abortion of pregnant women who were now free to work. This led to the victims to be more proactive in their resistance. German officials, even some of Krupp's lieutenants, were hanged, poisoned, or assassinated while they slept. The Nazis recorded the reason for this resistance in a clinical way. The population reacts particularly strongly against the forcible separation of mothers from their babies and schoolchildren from their families. Yet it must be said that some of this shock was due to Nazi propaganda, now believed completely, that said, these subhumans did not care for their offspring the way an Aryan does. The great irony of the Krupp dynasty was that, as this current war, the greatest war, which was to end all wars, and the Eastern Front would be decided mostly by tanks and artillery, was that the Krupp supplied the Wehrmacht with inferior weapons compared to the Soviets. That this happened at all was not, technically, Alfred's fault, but he does get all the blame as the Krupp head should. As we have only mentioned a fraction of the various boards Alfred was on, or the head of, he simply could not be everywhere at all times. And his gift, though he was a visionary of the corporate world, his true talent, nay his genius, was armaments design. Others should have been put in charge of the front office, and there were others helping run the place, and we'll cover them in a minute. But no one could match what Alfred could do with field reports, by examining a weapon's use and then making it more efficient, and therefore deadlier. Again, the fact that Krupp weapons were not equal to Russian equipment was Alfred's responsibility. But it wasn't all his fault. First, there was the overweening arrogance of the Germans in believing that, despite reports and later captured blueprints, that German tanks and guns would always be superior to anything a Russian could design or put together. As for the other people who made this weakness that played a major role in why Germany lost to Russia, one was Karl Gorens, in charge of technical matters. He was up to the challenge, but soon after Barbarossa commenced, he lost his only son. Afterward, he was unable to concentrate or care about the outside world. Then there was Loeser, who, it will be remembered, almost inherited the top job, given Gustav's fading faculties and Alfred's seemingly disloyalty with his choice of a wife. Loeser could run anything efficiently, but what he could not do was tow the Hitler line. No, the Germans were not destined to rule the world. No, it was not all right to treat the rest of the world with careless cruelty. So it would be Lozer who would reach out to Alan Dulles of the newly created OSS Office of Strategic Services in Switzerland. However, as a paper pusher, the best Lozer could do was occasionally gum up the works in Essen. And he did this whenever he could. Lastly, came Eric Kanonen-Müller. His responsibility was armaments design, but instead of flights of proficiency, paramount in making war machines, his was flights of fancy. First, he could never imagine a Soviet weapon being better than one from Essen, which is fine, in theory. But those not in first place strive to find out why they, or theirs, is not the best, and then make changes. That's not what Mueller was about. His ideas were too complex, with special features thrown in, that certainly impressed the generals, but not the soldiers in the field, who had to work with something that had too many pieces, too many moving parts, that could easily malfunction. Then there was Dr. Ferdinand Porsche, who Mueller bought on board for his creativity. These men simply belonged in a toy store, inventing things to delight the imagination of children, not in Krupp's concern. Again, at the end of the day, Alfred bears responsibility for much of what happened, or rather, didn't happen, on the Eastern Front. And it was he who wanted, above all else, to be the Cannon King. And now that he was, when Barbarossa opened up, The congratulations flowed in. But as the next two years went by, the messages stopped coming from Berlin. But that was the joy and hurt of being the Cannon King.